name's Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth in Mission. It's been a few days since the Taliban moved in and toppled Afghanistan's government. Thousands of people have been desperate to escape the country, and others are in hiding, unsure of their own fates. Two decades after the U.S. invaded Afghanistan following 9-11, Americans are reckoning with the costs of the war, trillions of dollars, thousands of lives, and wondering what it means for the country's geopolitical objectives. Here in the Bay Area, Afghan immigrants and their families are grieving, plagued by sleepless nights and concern for loved ones. The trauma of what's happening in Afghanistan is happening here also. As political leaders and talking heads continue to analyze the situation, we're giving space to our fellow Bay Area and California residents to talk about what they're feeling, what they're most concerned about, and what futures they envision for their home country. We'll hear from an Afghan-American professor at San Jose State University who spent nearly a decade reporting and training journalists in Afghanistan. I had a a lot of good friends there. And as soon as uh, I woke up on Sunday, uh, they started messaging me. I started messaging them. I kept hearing about what's going on on the ground. We'll also hear from two 16-year-old twin sisters in Sacramento who immigrated from Afghanistan three years ago. They recently returned from a visit to their home country, and they left just in time before the Taliban took control of Kabul. It's just unbelievable. Within just three weeks, the country is turned upside down. Lastly, we'll hear from Khalid Hosseini. The best-selling novelist is known for his deeply human stories set in Afghanistan, including the widely acclaimed Kite Runner and A Thousand Splendid Sons. And he joins me later to talk about why this moment feels different to him. No one really knows how the Taliban are uh, frankly, really going to behave. We can take some really educated guesses and even draw some uh, tentative conclusions from their behavior the last few days. I, I haven't felt this bleak about Afghanistan since the mid-1990s. First, let's start with Halima Kazim, a lecturer in journalism and human rights at San Jose State University. She was born in Kabul six months before the communist coup in 1978, which was followed the next year by the Soviet invasion. I asked her how she felt when she first learned that the Taliban had taken control of Afghanistan. The first thing that went that went through my mind uh, when I found out that the Taliban had taken over Kabul on Sunday was that I'd never be able to go back. That was such a deep loss. I spent uh, almost a decade uh, living in and reporting from Afghanistan and working there. So over those years, I made a lot of friends and I trained hundreds of journalists. I had a a lot of good friends there. And as soon as uh, I woke up on Sunday, uh, they started messaging me. I started messaging them. I kept hearing about what's going on on the ground. So the Taliban took over Kabul on Sunday, but they had been slowly taking over cities the last few weeks. People are telling me different things because they're at different stages of the takeover. So Kabul on Sunday was just devastation and shock. But Mazar and in Herat especially, they were starting to tell me that now the Taliban are starting to crack down. Now they are making lists. Now they are following people. Now they are coming to our homes. A couple of people uh, who I'm close to said, we're in hiding. We can't. We had to leave our homes. The first few days, we didn't. But then we felt the need because we, the, the patrols started. And so it's different from the messaging that um, the U.S. is saying that the Taliban are coming in peacefully. But I'm hearing different things from Herat and Mazar and different places where they took those places earlier. 
when the communist government fell, my father was a economics professor at Kabul University. He was tortured and imprisoned um, you know, by that regime. The communist government at that time swept through the universities, taking intellectuals. What these movements do is try to destroy knowledge bases and expertise and history. Uh, and so we call it a brain drain. And that's what I'm afraid of right now. I want to help these individuals because they're individuals, but I also want to help them preserve their knowledge um, and, and their experience. We're working with different universities around the Bay Area to see who can offer um, perhaps a scholar in residence, um, you know, uh, visas, um, scholars abroad, foreign scholars. We're just exploring to see what can our universities do um, and, and how can we bring these scholars and down the line, if we can get them here, it's how can we help them record their experiences and their knowledge, preserve this knowledge, which didn't happen in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And I think the biggest thing is for the United States to help and make sure a humanitarian corridor exists in Afghanistan, which means uh, flights, people being able to get to the airport, people being able to get visas, people being able to get on planes safely and planes taking off safely. That was Halima Kazem, a lecturer in journalism and human rights at San Jose State University. Next, we'll hear from Sapita and Gazelle Saidi. They're high school juniors at Mira Loma High School in Sacramento. Hi, my name is Sapita, and I'm a junior at Mira Loma High School. Um, hello, my name is Gazelle. I'm a junior at Mira Loma High School, and we're living in U.S. now, but I was born in Afghanistan. The 16-year-old twin sisters immigrated to the United States three years ago, and they just returned from visiting Afghanistan. They started school last Thursday, and now, just days later, they have to reconcile not only with the start of a new school year, but also the dangers facing their loved ones in their home country, people they saw just a few weeks ago. So when we went there, we all felt content and happy being there, even though we knew it's a dangerous place to be. But just knowing that our families are nearby and everyone's like, okay, because we saw them, um, it just felt really uh, content. Um, we didn't have this longing feeling in our hearts. It's just been really shocking and, to be honest, really overwhelming because it's just unbelievable within just three weeks, the country is turned upside down. We know that for sure we won't be able to go back for a few years, but what we will miss the most would be our families. Before Taliban took over, at least we knew they weren't in great danger, even if it was dangerous there. But now we don't even know if they're going to be okay, safe and alive within the next, I don't even know, five minutes. So it's just scary. Of course, we will miss them and we would be happy to see them. But it's okay if we know they're safe. But now we don't even know, if, like she said, if they will be alive by tomorrow morning or even the next 10 minutes. When we heard the news, it was our first day of school the other day. Um, and when we went and sat in class, personally for me, I just couldn't really pay attention in class because I was remembering the situation and the news so it was hard to concentrate in class. For me, it doesn't seem real. Like, even though I was there, I 
hear ev- all the stories every day and my aunt and uncles they tell us the news and stuff but it still feels like it's not real i'm still like am i dreaming because this is like n- not something that should be happening i feel like i should be really grateful to be in a country like us because the most important thing is to be safe and i am safe here so it's just really comforting in a way but then people in afghanistan aren't really safe they don't like i said uh they don't even know if they're going to be alive within the next minute so um i'm just hoping people would at least appreciate and understand the fact that they're safe and are in a good country that has a lot of opportunities for them i'm just hoping they understand that being away from your um families isn't a good thing just Um it's just been really frustrating. So I just hope people would understand or at least try to understand the uh, um what we're going through. Like some people I've heard that say um oh this um government shall help. <laughs> But this is just basic human needs and It should not bring politics into it because it doesn't matter who you support or not. Like everyone needs the basic, like food, water, a house. They all need that. It doesn't matter where you're from or what you do or who you support. That was Sapita and Gazelle Saidi, high school juniors at Mira Loma High School in Sacramento. You're listening to Fifth Emission. We'll be right back after a quick break. I'm joined now by Afghan-American novelist Khaled Hosseini. He and his family were refugees from Afghanistan, and they eventually moved to San Jose in 1980. His debut novel, The Kite Runner, was published in 2003, just a couple years after the U.S. invaded Afghanistan. More than 40 million copies of the book were sold worldwide, and it was published in over 70 countries and made into a critically acclaimed movie. Khalid's writing is deeply rooted in Afghanistan's history and culture, and he joins me now to talk about what's happening in his home country. Khalid, thank you for joining me on Fifth Emission. Thank you so much. You've had a couple days to digest the news, and I wonder, are you feeling any different now? than the initial emotions you felt when the news first unfolded? Well, the initial shock, uh, some of it at least, has worn off. I, I, I still uh, remember how stunned I was when I woke up a couple of days ago and looked at my phone and read that Kabul had fallen. I didn't expect it to happen so quickly. So some of that shock has worn off. There's still lingering uh, shock, but now mostly I'm uh, worried. I'm worried uh, on a granular level for people that I know in Afghanistan family in the western part of the country, colleagues that I know work in Kabul uh, that have served Afghanistan the last uh, 20 years uh, in, uh, in uh, aid organizations. I'm worried about ethnic minorities. I'm worried about human rights activists. I'm mostly worried about women and girls and what the future holds for them. No one really knows how the Taliban are uh, frankly really going to behave. We can take some really educated guesses and even draw some Uh, tentative conclusions from their behavior the last few days. But uh, I think there's quite a bit of uncertainty. And do you, like 
Other Bay Area residents have loved ones in Afghanistan who are facing this uncertainty and danger. Even after decades and decades of conflict, does this moment right now feel different than before? It does. We were all really, uh, really upset um, after September 11th, after we learned that the attacks on New York had originated in Afghanistan. And when the United States uh, announced its decision to uh, go to Afghanistan, we knew that meant more fighting, it meant more destruction, it meant more dying and probably more displaced people. Um, at the same time, um, a lot of people felt that at the other end of this awful, awful ordeal, there might be a better day. There might be a hope for a future, a more stable, more peaceful, more representative, inclusive country. Um, I don't know that anybody feels that way now. This particular moment feels to me is the bleakest uh, moment of, you know, really just going back to the uh, civil war of the mid 1990s when Afghanistan was utterly decimated, particularly Kabul. I haven't felt that dark about the country since then. Mm. Kite Runner was published just a couple years after the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, and it helped shine a light on Afghan culture and customs to an international community that oftentimes focused on the Taliban and the violence in the country. But here we are now talking about the latest events and what's still missing in our true understanding of Afghanistan culture and Afghan people. You know, I think people tend to associate Afghanistan with war, with violence, with the Taliban, with the opium trade, uh, uh, the illicit drug trade and so on. Um, but, you know, Afghanistan is an ancient, ancient place. There's an ancient culture there. There's a poetry in the soul of the people. Uh, the food is wonderful. It's wonderful. The people have this very uh, innate hospitality, I should say, about them. They're, they're humble um, people who go to Afghanistan uh, always feel like they haven't really visited any other place like this country before. They always walk away just in awe of the place. Uh, we call it the Afghan bug. Uh, you know, once you've been uh, bitten by the Afghan bug, it never leaves your system. And I hear that uh, from, you know, U.S. Marines. I hear it from aid workers. I hear it from people that serve there in the government and so forth. So um, it's a beautiful country. And I just, I just wish it wasn't uh, forever associated with all these negative things. But here we are. There's a lot of focus, like you said, on whether Afghan women will be able to actively participate in society by going to schools and working. The Taliban is saying that will happen. Will this be a critical measure of whether or not the Taliban can actually rule the country differently this time and why? Oh, absolutely. It's a critical measure. In fact, I think it's one of the, the best measures of, of us actually evaluating the Taliban. I don't put much credence at all into what the Taliban have been saying on television the last few days with the bright light of all the cameras in the world on them and the whole globe watching what they're going to say. Yeah, they're going to say the right things. What I'm interested in is once the cameras are packed and gone, once people have turned to some other crisis and other interests, how will the Taliban behave then in the relative quiet? Uh, how will they treat women then? I hope they have learned some lessons from the last time they ran the country uh, they've been very, very effective at winning battles and, and conquering the country. It's a whole other thing to sit and actually govern Afghanistan. 
And uh, I hope they learned that lesson the last time they were here where they failed absolutely miserably. And if they want to have any realistic chance of having Afghanistan become a, a viable state that actually has a future, um, they have to co-opt women into that process. They have to invite women into the rebuilding process and allow them to be a meaningful part of society in a legitimate way and not just, you know, in a kind of superficial way. You know, a guy shows up at a TV station and has an interview with a female journalist and we're supposed to think that they've changed their ways. Uh, it's going to take a whole lot more than that for us to, to join. They have been brutalizing Afghan people for 20 years. A couple of interviews is not going to change your mind. You recently tweeted that the U.S. has a moral obligation to the Afghan people. What did you mean by that? And how can us as American citizens be a part of that effort? Well, look, uh, lots of Afghans bought into what the United States were saying. Lots of Afghans risked their lives, their livelihood, uh, frankly, their families by uh uh, you know, volunteering to uh, work alongside the Americans uh, and because they, they believed in what the U.S. was saying, that there's, uh, at the end of all this, a potential for a better future, a more stable country, a uh, more, you know, representative political process, uh, better economic opportunities. But now they wake up and realize that in the middle of the night, the Americans have left and who is in town are the same people who for 20 years have been terrorizing and mutilating and bombing schools and hospitals and slaughtering ordinary Afghans. Now they're back and they're at the mercy of those people. And the US is pointing its fingers at the Afghan army and the Afghan government. Uh, I do believe that after 20 years of fighting in a country where tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people died, there is a moral obligation uh, to take in Afghan refugees. I, I believe that very firmly. I realize it's not a popular notion it doesn't matter to me. I believe it's the right thing to do. And what do you think will be America's biggest lesson or takeaway after this two-decade war, not just with Afghanistan, but its geopolitical role throughout the world? Look, I, I, I the, the story of how where we where we end up ended up with Afghanistan that is a very very long one. I I actually happened to support that American intervention in Afghanistan, uh, as did the majority of Afghans, uh, both abroad and in Afghanistan. In my trips to Afghanistan, when I spoke to fellow Afghans, uh, they said their greatest fear, the thing that kept them up at night, is if the United States decided to leave. I think our biggest failure in Afghanistan was, you know, not being able to establish a government for the Afghan people, by the Afghan people, as it were. Uh, a government that was representative, that people could trust. Uh, instead, what they got was a series of regimes that failed to protect the Afghan people against insurgent groups, that failed to deliver important resources, uh, and that proved to be greedy and corrupt. And all of that created uh, a, a, a real kind of disenchantment with the Afghan uh, uh, governments and robbed the Afghan government of even a semblance of credibility and legitimacy in the eyes of the Afghan. That is absolutely disastrous because this is why the Afghan army didn't fight. You know, it's very hard to point the finger at the Afghan army, but put yourself in their place. Uh, imagine that you uh, are poorly fed, poorly clothed, poorly paid, possibly unpaid, that you're poorly armed. Imagine that the state for which you're supposed to be fighting has virtually no legitimacy, that government officials have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars put in foreign banks 
and are getting ready to leave the country, but they're asking you to stay and fight and risk your life and the lives of your family. And here's this united, powerful army at the gates. Wouldn't you run? And Khaled, you've been such an important bridge for the international community to helping understand the multifaceted and rich history and culture of Afghanistan. What stories do you think the next generation of Afghan or Afghan-American writers might tell? Or what do you hope they'll tell? <laughs> I'm afraid there aren't going to be a lot of happy stories moving forward. I mean, this is one of my dreams have been that, you know, back in the early 2000s, that uh, as the country opened up and as peace and stability returned and as people were able to occupy themselves with things other than, you know, packing your clothes as soon as possible, running for the nearest border, uh, that, that, that would create the space for all this creation of artistic work and, and so forth. Right now, I think if, if I were to write about Afghanistan, I would write about what's going on today. This is incredibly important. It's incredibly riveting. It's incredibly tragic. It's all the stuff that makes for, for good writing, I suppose. But uh, I go back to what I said earlier, that I, I haven't felt this bleak about Afghanistan since the mid-1990s. And I think any writing about Afghanistan would probably reflect that. Yeah. Well, it's a very somber time, and I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me about it. I appreciate it, Cecilia. Thank you so much. Khaled Hosseini is an author and a U.S. goodwill envoy to the U.N. Refugee Agency. He also founded a nonprofit that provides humanitarian assistance to the people of Afghanistan. You can learn more at KhaledHosseiniFoundation.org. For more coverage on how Bay Area residents are dealing with the situation in Afghanistan and to find out how you can help families fleeing Afghanistan, visit sfchronicle.com or the Chronicle app. Huge thanks to Taya Francesca Price for producing this episode and to you for listening. <laughs>